We all know the story of heroes embarking on an epic quest to defeat evil. It would be cliche if it hadn't captured our imaginations for generations. But what happens when the heroes fail? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Victoria Aveyard, author of the best-selling Red Queen series. Her new fantasy series from Harper Teen starts with Realm Breaker, which releases next week. Victoria and I discuss how she builds new worlds, ways to apply screenwriting techniques to writing novels, and the pressure of following up the massively successful Red Queen series with something totally new. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Victoria. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is such a a, a cool concept. Um, and obviously, who doesn't love hanging out in a Fantasy Inn? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do I do love the whole name idea. It's supposed to be cozy. It's supposed to be friendly and kind of welcoming. And eh, we try to hit that. Definitely. Well, I'm really excited to sort of get into it. Yeah, let's do it. So I guess... First question for you, as someone with a background in screenwriting, I'm just curious, what do you consider to be a perfect movie? And I know this is probably a loaded (laughs) question, so however you define perfect or perfect enough for you. Right. Um, I must say I'm really glad I got this question in particular beforehand because these are always the ones that you can't really think of off the cuff and then you think of a better answer much later on. I think for me, my perfect film... I always gravitate towards series, but if I have to go with one single installment, it would have to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think it, it just encapsulates adventure and character, cinematography, score. Every aspect of the movie-making experience is perfect in that film, at least for me. Yeah, I love that. This is perfect because maybe you can weigh in on this because uh, I agree that Raiders of the Lost Ark is amazing and perfect and excellent. Uh, my wife thinks that The Last Crusade is significantly better. Okay. You have okay. any thoughts so on that? Here's the th- I do. I do. <laughs> I think for the average person, if you've never seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark is the way to go because okay. Last Crusade relies upon some of the world building and character development for you to really get the full extent of the experience. I am on your wife's side when it comes to okay. Last Crusade versus Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. I think technically Raiders is more perfect. Um, and if you were to have an audience watch both of them, more people would gravitate towards Raiders. And I understand why it sets up this iconic character um, and this style in this world. But Last Crusade it is so much deeper on a character level. Like the emotional stakes are there. The juxtaposition of Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. The comedy, it's just, it takes everything to a 10. I personally, if I had to choose between watching the two on like a Friday night, I would choose Last Crusade. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Fair enough. <laughs> it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a fighting sort of interview. Yeah, I see. yeah, yeah. I, I woke up today and chose violence. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, um, okay. So I guess taking things back a bit further then, can you remember what first made you fall in love with fantasy? I think we're going to be on a George Lucas train today, but um, I know Star Wars often gets put in the sci-fi bucket, but it is very much a fantasy that just has the window dressing of science fiction. Um, There's much more magic than science in those uh, stories. So Star Wars, I think the first time I watched the original trilogy, I was maybe three years old. And I had the special edition VHSs growing up, and I used to watch those all the time, especially the like little mini documentaries on how they made them. 
at the beginning of the movie. Like I was definitely a six-year-old kid. Like, look how they added this scene in, dad. And my dad's like, you're a weird child. But on the literature side, I read Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine when I was about seven years old. And that was the first like, oh my God, I love fantasy. I love reading fantasy. And then The Lord of the Rings, when I first read those books and saw those movies when I was 11, or the first movie came out when I was 11, um, that was not just, I love fantasy and I like enjoying and experiencing it. It is, I feel such a connection to this. I want to be a part of it in some way. I want to create my own. I think this is something I need to be doing with my life. But I didn't figure out I could do that as more than a hobby until later on in high school. And it put me on a very interesting path that has led me here. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of interesting path, you are in a somewhat rare situation where you're coming into this new series we're going to be talking about where you already have an existing series that's seen incredible success. Uh, and so starting a new project, what kind of pressure do you feel? Uh, if any, maybe you don't feel any pressure. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. There is certainly pressure. Um and it, it's both external and internal. I very much have readers who want mm -hmm. certain things and they want the next book to be good. They're not here to like tear me down or anything. They want it to be good, but I have to give them something good to sort of earn that um, support again. Uh, and that can be very nerve wracking and anxiety inducing because at this point in time, when you're about a month out from a book releasing, you really can't see the forest for the trees anymore. You have no idea how good or bad this book is. I've read it so many times and I see all of the errors that I made and all of the things I wish I could fix. Um, and you get to the point where you're like, this doesn't look like words at all. Uh, so now it's um, <laughs> letting it go and letting other people um, accept it and experience it and take it for what it means to them, which is also a really fun part of the process. I grew up writing fan fiction and my favorite part was always hitting submit on a certain chapter at night and then waking up the next morning to reviews. And this is that on the macro level and the reviews have started yeah. kind of coming in <laughs> on the advanced copies. And I very much look at reviews before the book comes out. I know a lot of authors don't and tell other authors not to. And I feel like it's, if you're comfortable with it, go for it. I find it to be very helpful for me and my process and getting better as a writer. But also, it does feel weird to have had a series that has been so successful and have readers who are so supportive and then be like, let's do that again, because <laughs> I'm very aware yeah. um, that that experience was once in a lifetime. And I'm just happy I get to keep writing books and that that series has enabled me to write this series because I knew I had a bigger opportunity and I could really go where the wind was blowing me because Red Queen sort of gave me that push. Yeah. And I, I do want to dig into more of like the actual mm. book stuff soon. But cool. I, I do have a couple other questions that I kind of want to talk to you about kind of starting along the lines of interaction with fans, mm. because uh, you do seem to have kind of a knack for interacting with fans. Um, <laughs> so I guess how, how do you approach it? Any advice for how you would tell other writers to maybe approach interacting with their fans? I think the first thing to remember is you draw your own boundaries and you are the only person who understands the balance um, and you know what you can put in and what you can give without harming yourself or taking too much of your own time or putting your energy somewhere where you're not getting the same energy back. Um, and different things work for different people. So it is about figuring out that balance for yourself. It's very strange to be working in YA specifically because social media is very, very important to our genre, especially because most of our readers are teenagers and they are on social media. Um, it's been 
cool to kind of see how they've migrated from one platform to another. When I started, it was Twitter. And then for the last few years, it's been Instagram, which I think had a much better platform than Twitter, at least for what we do. And now it's TikTok. And I've been on TikTok for maybe six months. And it's a completely different group of readers. It's people we aren't reaching on Twitter. We aren't reaching on Instagram. It's it's teenagers who are growing up right now, as opposed to people who have grown with us and are in you know their 20s or whatever. So because Red Queen came out six years ago, I very much have readers who have kind of grown up with me, but now I am trying to reach new readers too. And TikTok has been fantastic for that, but it is a severe learning curve and it doesn't work if you don't actually enjoy it. And I think I enjoy it too much. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I am very much not that familiar with TikTok. I go mm. on there and I'm like, man, am I am I the old man already yelling <laughs> off his lawn at like the yeah. youngins these days? But uh, no, I, I looked through your TikTok. It was interesting. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you'd be surprised that the algorithm really. The, I think the TikTok algorithm is going to kill us all one day <laughs> in ways that we all <laughs> enjoy because somehow it yep. knows exactly what you're looking for, and I get stuff that is very much like home DIY and cocktail recipes and books and things that are very much geared to me and don't make me feel like, oh, I got to go do this weird dance to make a video happen. It's much more expansive than that. And that's been cool and kind of takes the pressure off a little bit instead of just being like the, how do you do fellow kids person on TikTok? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, you can be like, oh, I would never put my characters through hell. Yes, exactly. Right. Like Exactly. <laughs> you do have to learn sort of like the memes and the structure if you want to kind of use that. Um, and that can take a lot of scrolling, which for me is a real, real spiral. I, I get to the point where the app itself is like, hey, you've been scrolling for a while. <laughs> I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, social media in general, but TikTok especially seems designed to be addictive. And if you mm-hmm. can tap into that, it's incredible. It is. But you got to you got to protect yourself in the process. It is a real double edged sword. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so also kind of on the note of doing things for fans. So something that I don't think I've ever seen authors do this before is uh, you and I'm hopefully not going to butcher his name. Soman Chinani uh, collaborated on a crossover graphic novel between your two series called, I think, Red School is the name of the graphic novel, which is so cool. It was. It was a really fun process. So Soman Chinani is the author of the School for Good and Evil series, which is a middle grade series. And he just released the sixth book and final book in that series in the past year. And the year before that was the end of the Red Queen series. And we have been friends um, and colleagues through the book sort of community for years and years. And the idea for this actually came because a few years ago, we were both in Brazil, in Sao Paulo for a book festival. And we noticed that we were getting the same readers coming to his signings and my signings. Sort of the Venn diagram of our readers is very close to a circle. People who are either starting with my books and going to his or going from his books to mine. It it, it seemed like there was a lot of crossover. And so naturally, we were like, maybe we should think about doing a crossover. And it started with it was just going to be some sort of exclusive small thing that we were going to do attached to a tour we were planning in Southeast Asia. We were planning on going to the Philippines and Singapore. And 2020, of course, was happening. Yep. 
that got derailed quite a bit. Um, but we still loved this idea and it expanded into collaborating on a graphic novel. And we had a great team. We had, uh, June was also helping us write. And then we had Joel Gennari, who was the artist and getting to finally see our characters and our worlds filtered through the eyes of another artist was really, really special. Probably the most difficult part of all of that was figuring out where to actually cross our books because while we did have a lot of people who had read both, we knew we were going to get new people to each side. So we wanted to make sure we weren't spoiling anything or go a cub jumping off from a place that was too confusing for someone to understand if they hadn't read everything. So that was a, that was interesting, but really, really fun. Yeah. I I love any kind of like exploring new mediums or doing things that are kind of fun and just like mix things up a bit. Right. Mm -hmm. And on that note, different mediums anyways, like I think your background is in screenwriting. Um, and so like as a trained screenwriter. So how do you take that and apply those techniques towards writing novels? Yeah. So um, I went to college to study screenwriting. That was one of the things I kind of figured out I could do once I realized I loved writing and specifically writing uh, for film and TV as much as books. So I went to USC and I was in their school for cinematic arts for four years. And a lot of that was workshop style classes, which really helped me sort of develop the basis for the thick skin you need to write professionally. That was very, very helpful. And it also kind of prepared me for the more collaborative sides of the process, which I think a lot of writers don't know exists or avoid as much as they can. I'm very much like, I like edits. I like having more voices in the room. I like having more opinions and some authors don't, and that works for them. But I always need the feedback. I need to know that what I'm doing is landing the way I want it to land. Probably the thing I take most from my screenwriting background is structure. I am such a hard ass for structure, specifically using three act, eight sequence, which is really classic story structure. And all of my books break down on this very, very simply. Like if you know what you're looking for, you're going to flip to the middle of the book and be like, wow, this is the midpoint. And she's, it's literally in the middle of the story. Crazy. Yeah. So I will say after I saw that the whole, like I'd never heard of the eight sequence thing before. I I have heard of three act structure, but uh, I flipped to the midpoint of Realm Breaker Mm -hmm. and sure enough, (laughs) <laughs> it is the midpoint. It is the midpoint. Yep. It is the moment where things change. And what we thought was going to happen isn't going to happen anymore. Um, but you can also use that structure on a grand scale and use it to structure a series as well. Like Star Wars does this, the original trilogy, especially when you think of the end of Empire Strikes Back. Han Solo is in Carbonite. We don't know what we're going to do. We're very much at the end of Act 2. And Return of the Jedi is all Act 3. And I am also structuring Realm Breaker in this way. So there's going to be three books. The end of the second book is absolutely the lowest point. The third book is going to be that third act where everything's kind of moving at a breakneck pace and everything we've set up is now kind of collapsing or colliding. Uh, it, It helps me to have that skeleton But I also don't like outlining that much, if that makes any sense, because I don't want to take sort of the discovery out of the process either. I know people who do 40 page outlines and that sounds like hell to me, but also like a lot more work than you need to be doing. Yep. I mean, I I agree wholeheartedly. My first outline I ever wrote was over 20,000 words long. So definitely, I, I think I learned never do that again. Yeah, it's the same with like world building, too, is. 
I, I could role build all day long, but then I would lose all my momentum and want to actually tell the story. So it's the same with outlining. You have to really energize your balance and figure out where you're going to put your focus and your effort and a lot different points to different things, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And so, okay, one last writing craft nerd question before we dive into Realm Breaker. This may contradict a little bit what I was thinking when you're talking about not enjoying outlining, but I've heard that you use spreadsheets to help Mm. kind of plan and organize your stories. So what's that like? Yeah, so I did a little bit of it for... um, it's basically just Excel sheets. And okay. I had two specific ones that I really relied on for Red Queen, which were um, a name bank. And I know that people can really get caught up in names. And for me, you know, I can lose an hour to trying to figure out some random side character's name. So I sat down one day for Red Queen and I did a bank of 20, 30 names for characters who were red so they didn't have superpowers they were more common people and for characters who were silvers who were much more elite and sort of had a roman latin imperial inspired lilt to their names so whenever as i was drafting i would run into a character who needed a name i could just go to this spreadsheet and pull one and just keep on moving that was really helpful to me and then the other one was pretty much all of the real basic world building information that i needed to have on hand like what superpowers characters had, what families they belonged to, what their house colors were, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, probably easier to have something like that to help with the drafting than to like Mm -hmm. very detailed be like, all right, here's beat one, beat two, beat three, beat four, all the way through the plot. Yes. Yeah. But I don't do beats so much as I will do the sequences and the sequences will have, you know, this happens here. We're assembling the team in this sequence. Very, very basic sure kind of stuff just so i know the rhythm yeah makes sense and okay so yeah now on to what you're actually here for talking about (laughs) realm breaker so do you have a pitch for us yeah so i guess realm breaker is about what happens when the heroes fail when um you send out all of the good guys meant to save the world and they die you know who's the b team who's the jv team to saving the world and that really, really blossomed into this adventure that I've always kind of wanted to write. And now I think I have the opportunity to do it. Yeah, love that pitch. And uh, so this is kind of a recurring theme for me is I don't really read up a ton about books before I dive into them. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that that was kind of the starting conceit of this story. Uh, That was a very (laughs) surprising, it was a very surprising prologue. (laughs) Yes, that is my point. And I had to really fight for that prologue too. And I'm really happy it it ended up the way it did in the books. Um, Yeah, that's the one thing about the way that we're messaging the story that I'm like, oh, we're kind of blowing like the first surprise in the story. Um, But I know in the long run, that won't be a problem. So yeah, I'm I'm glad you got to experience it as I intended. Yeah, I did. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, for people worried about spoilers, it is like two or three percent of the way into the story, yeah. <laughs> something really small. So it's it's not that bad. Yeah, that that prologue was a behemoth when it started. It was about 12,000 words. Um, wow. And my ed- editorial team were talking about like pulling it wholesale and turning it into a novella. And I was like, no, it has to be in the book. And I got it down <laughs> to six. And they said, can you get it down to three? And I said, over my dead body (laughs) was the one thing I really (laughs) held firm on. Yeah. Well, uh, at least this reader can say that it worked pretty well for me. Hooray. (laughs) 
But yeah, so I guess if that's kind of like your pitch for it, I am curious because I know in Red Queen, you've talked before about like this visual image mm -hmm. seed of like this girl like calling down lightning to electrocute her executioner. Uh, is there a similar kind of like striking image that kicked this off? This one didn't really come from an image. The first thing that was in my head was definitely that prologue. Okay. Um, but the but the story itself, the first little seed wasn't an image or anything. I started out asking myself as I was finishing up Red Queen, you know, what do I want to write next? And then I got to thinking, well, what was I looking for when I was 14 years old? Like what stories was I trying to find and not finding? And I gravitated towards fan fiction so much because fan fiction was feeding the pieces of myself that didn't feel represented in my classic stories. You know, I loved Lord of the Rings so much, but it didn't love me back. I was not able to be part of the fellowship. And most people are very much excluded from that world. I knew I was like, well, maybe I can jump off with that idea in mind of doing a classic fantasy quest that I feel like I could be part of. And then once I knew I was jumping off from that place, it became, well, what would have happened if the fellowship had all gotten their asses handed to them? Who would they call up next? And then it became building out this team and this world and knowing what specific points I was coming from to get to point C and finding that point B in the middle. Yeah, gotcha. That all makes sense. Um, and I think Realm Breaker is the final title. Yes. And you started with a few different titles, I believe. So what was that like? I did. So it started with Spindle and Blade. And okay. that was that was my working title in my head. And the publisher was kind of eh on it. And then we went from Spindle and Blade uh, because it was a little too similar to other stories, which I totally get. Uh, we went from Spindle and Blade to Spindle Blade. And okay. I was going to call them... Spindle Blade, Spindle Broken, and Spindle Born for the next two. And of course, that one got next two. And we eventually went through the brainstorming process and we're having like lists and lists of titles. Um, and I came up with Realm Breaker. And Realm Breaker was the one that we all agreed on that felt really evocative and really sharp and very punchy and fit the story. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a punchy name. Thank you. Uh, is it a similar kind of structure? Is it going to be like Realm Breaker, Realm Saver, Realm <laughs> Destroyer or something? Breaker will stay the same for each book. Gotcha. Okay. I, I always like title progression like that. It's mm -hmm. always interesting Me to too. see how it comes across. Yeah. I'm really excited for the covers too. We've just started the conversation about uh, the cover for the second one. And we know what we're doing basically for each one. They're all going to have a real cohesive pattern to them. Uh, but okay. the slight changes are going to be evocative of the way the story is changing. That's great. And it's interesting to hear that you have some kind of input as well into the cover process, because I know for a lot of authors, they yes. might have like zero input at all. Yes. Um, and that started with Red Queen. Even when I was a debut, they, they asked me, you know, what do you want? And I said, here's exactly what I want. Here's exactly what I don't want. I said, I wanted a crown upside down on the cover, something very, very simple um, and symbolic and something that it would appeal to a very wide audience. And they said, great, upside down crown. Can we put blood on it? And I was like, absolutely, we can put blood on it. <laughs> and then for Realm Breaker, we had a bit of a bumpier process. The first cover we came up with just wasn't working for everyone. And we had to scrap it pretty late. And I said, I want a hand holding a sword with blood coming off the hand. And we were like, cool. It makes sense with your brand. And it makes sense with the story. And it's a little simpler than what we were going for in the first round. And I, I just love it to death. It, they really knocked it out of the park in a very small amount of time. Yeah, I'm a fan of the cover as well. Thank you. 
yeah, we are talking a lot about Red Queen as well as Realm Breaker, but now that you have a finished series under your belt, is there anything you approach differently in Realm Breaker? I definitely knew more of where this series was going to end. And I don't know if that's because of my experience with Red Queen. I did know the general arc of Red Queen very, very early in that process, especially where certain characters were going to end up, who was going to be alive, who was going to be dead, what relationships would still be intact. Um, That I figured out early, but for Realm Breaker, the story feels so much more simple. And when I say simple, I I like simple. It it just makes sense to me. Every piece is like, well, logically, then this would happen. And then this, and then this, and then this. And I really love how the pieces have kind of fallen into place. And I've had the ending of this series in my head for almost as long as the series itself. The same with the ending of the second book. I have scenes way, way, way in the future. I'm really excited to write. And that's been a different experience. But I don't know if it's just because of the nature of this story or because subconsciously I'm like, don't get into the same mistakes you made last time. You're learning. Right. And I think it's always a mix of both, right? Is you Mm -hmm. want to be trying something new that's not quite the same, but also you do have all of that past experience to build on. Mm -hmm. And I have an audience that wants certain things from me. Um, And luckily, they're things I want to give. But you have to be very aware of what your audience expects. And sometimes you want to really give them what they expect. And sometimes you want to use that against them. And that's my favorite part is sort of taking what the audience wants and giving it to them in a way that they don't really expect and using that tension and that suspension of belief to my advantage. Which sounds like this evil, like, mwahaha, like, <laughs> author kind of thing. Uh, but that's great, right? I feel like as a reader, at least, I enjoy that as well. Like, if I say, oh, this writer just, like, stomped my heart and grounded into the dirt, like, that's a compliment. That's oh, something absolutely. I enjoy. <laughs> I will put your heart on my wall. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Stick it right up next to all right. the others. Yep. Uh, so yeah, you mentioned Lord of the Rings quite a bit as well. And I know, mm-hmm. so Tolkien is huge, huge, huge into world building. Yes. And so I know you are as well, like you said. So as someone who loves world building so much, what does that process look like for you? Yeah. Well, Tolkien like literally wrote a watershed fantasy novel to be the vehicle for a language he invented, which I wouldn't <laughs> go as far as that. I am no champion linguist or Oxford scholar. Um, but yeah, the world building is always my favorite part of figuring out you know, the parameters of this new place. And I always start with a map because I'm very, very visual and I need to picture where things are. But I also think geography informs culture and society so much. And then that in turn will inform your story and your characters. So it's a lot of just using pieces that naturally build upon each other. Um, I do have that moment where I have to stop myself because I'm like, hey, you do not need to know like the trade routes for salt. Like you don't need to know that. The, The audience doesn't need to know that. And this is not useful and you're wasting your time at this point and you need to move on. So I don't have a full complete world and I don't think any author really does uh, at this point in time, but I definitely jump off with something that is very, very solid. And I very much can think of a country and know some information about it and also discover things that I need within the story as well. You know, you want that room for the mysterious and for the story to inform the world as much as the world informs the story. Um, It is important for anyone who is world building to really start with your parameters. Like I knew I was going into a medieval world inspired by 
Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East, specifically like the Mediterranean sphere during the late 13th century. So like crusades kind of. Um, And I find that very helpful to have these real world things to lean back on for the research side of things and just help it make it feel a little bit more real and logical to the audience because we are telling these extraordinary stories and there's only so much of that we can give them before it starts to feel unbelievable. So you have to do everything you can in the places you can to make it feel real. And that means, you know, having real societies, having worlds that feel like they function outside of that little scope of your story and having characters who react in ways that you understand and connect to, to things that are totally wild. Yeah. I mean, what is the like age old advice where it's like, take the smallest number of things possible that you have to like get your audience to buy into. And then the rest like goes from there. Absolutely. My, um, thesis professor back in college, she gave us that advice um, and said, you can get the audience to believe one unbelievable thing and everything else to the best of your ability has to make sense under that umbrella. Do you consciously think about that? Do you have like your one unbelievable thing for Realm Breaker? Yeah. So the unbelievable thing is this world used to have portals to other worlds and everything beneath that makes sense because the portal magic is a big piece of magic. And you can say, well, in another world, there are unicorns. And in another world, there are dragons. And in another world, there are immortal people. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense with portals. But everything else, the governments, the wars, the countries, the characters, that all makes sense to us on a political level. I know one of my pet peeves as a longtime reader of fantasy is someone's like, oh, why are you like asking these questions about inconsistencies? Like, you're okay with dragons. Why aren't you okay with like completely illogical other things? Like, "Eh, that's not quite how it works. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where people use that as sort of a hammer (laughs) against having more inclusive worlds too, where they're like, I don't believe that there would be black people in this medieval England. And it's like, well, one, there were. So you're incorrect. Um, And that was also a big inspiration in the world of Realm Breaker is the medieval world has a very, very white portrayal in our um, media. And that's just not true, especially within the Mediterranean. The world was so large and so full of different crossings of cultures and different nationalities. And I feel like that is another thing that makes this world feel real and expansive is this person here is going to sail here and they have this background and this knowledge and this religion and this, that, and the other, all of those things combined to make it feel a little more whole versus just, we're going to ride between these two castles that have the same architecture style and the same everything else. I, I find I've always been really interested in the corners of maps in my fantasy stories, you know, in Lord of the Rings, in Middle-earth, in Narnia, I always wanted to push past those edges and know what more was there. You know, I wanted to know more about Kalerman and um, Telmar, and I wanted to know more about Far Herod and Khand and all of these places that kind of just got pushed to the edges and their characters were marginalized in a certain way. And I wanted to understand their politics too. And that is something I think in Lord of the Rings that always perplexed me was like, There was no government structure. It didn't feel like these places interacted with each other as much as they should have on a historical level. And I was always so amazed because you start in the Shire, which is essentially like 19th century England. They have glass, they have a post office. And then you go to Rohan and the king is living in a barn. And I want to be like, what's up here? Like, what's the deal? What's the technological (laughs) flow? 
Um, so I, I try to make my things feel a little bit more expansive and you can see where uh, different pieces of knowledge come from as well. Oh, that makes sense. Um, and I do feel like talking about your love of maps and exploring the corners of it, uh, a lot of Realm Breaker does kind of feel like that. We get to go from point A to B to C to D to E all the way along throughout the book. And there is a lot of diversity there. There's a lot of very different places. It's not just another castle that looks identical. Yeah. And it was partially, I mean, I got to do that because I had so many different POVs. Um, and while a lot of them come together, some of them are still in very different pieces of the world. So I get to have that camera elsewhere. And there are definitely places that I know on the map, I'm never going to get a character there. Um, but I want it to be there just to say, you know, this exists and more places exist. And this is much bigger than what you are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, that informs so much even from just like offhanded casual references, mm -hmm. knowing that it's there to at some point, if you ever make a book of lore about the world, we know <laughs> there's like a huge audience for that. Just look at how like fire and blood went for George R.R. Martin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's above my head right now, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so it does sound like also that you are significantly more of a visual reader than I am. Mm -hmm. I know, uh, I, I think I only recently learned the phrase like aphantasia, where I don't really picture anything when I'm reading. Wow, um, I want to understand yeah. what that's like. It, it's it's weird because in the moment, I don't picture anything, but my memories of books are somewhat visual, uh, if that makes sense, because I'm not remembering it words doesn't. on the page. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> so like I remember what happens. And so if I think back on what happens, I kind of have some sort of visual structure there. But if you ever ask me what the surroundings look like or what a character looks like or it, God forbid you ever ask me hair color or height or anything like mm -hmm. that, I would not be able to tell you. Yeah, that was something I had to kind of relearn, too, because coming from screenwriting, you are told not to actually describe your characters physically very much because you don't want to exclude actors in casting. So your characters, right. you know, you're giving more notes on their personality and the way they hold themselves and their attitude versus their physical appearance. And then coming to books, one of the notes in one of the last like edit rounds of the first Red Queen book is... My editor said, I don't know what this main character looks like. Can you do something with that? And I was like, do I have to? And she said, yeah, <laughs> this is a book. So that was one of the things I had to work on breaking myself out of is being more deliberate in my description of characters. It was a fun thing to learn. And I'm still, you know, very much leaning into that where my editor will say, you know, have fun, describe what they're wearing. And I'm like, cool, I want to get into like the sword fight. Um, but as far as visually, I, yes, I very much see it like shot for shot in my head. And I try to use as much as I can to, uh, repeat that image in the mind of my reader. Um, and one thing you do learn in screenwriting is how to communicate that in as few words as possible. Screenwriting is a very, very spare medium. And um, while the structure and storytelling, uh, pieces are the same. It, the format is very different. And I try to bring that as much as I can into my prose because while I do have time to describe a lot more things, you don't want to get lost in that either. You want to keep going. And that's one thing I, I really love about YA and why I think I really gravitate towards YA is because those books are so fast paced. Their, their pace is so, so quick. And a lot of people confuse pace for length. You can have a very, very slow 100 page book and a very, very fast 800 page book. Um, and I prefer fast pace. I prefer speed and get and getting through those scenes as fast as possible. Um, so that's what I go for when I'm writing. And um, 
yeah, visually, I'm always trying to replicate the image in my head and give the audience exactly what they need and nothing more so that they can get that experience too. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating for me because it's just so different from how I approach it. Mm -hmm. um, like for me, if I was going to try to describe a scene, it wouldn't be, okay, how do I translate what I see in my head? It would be, okay, I need to figure out what it looks like around me. And like, I'll look around the room and be like, okay, like this is a color. I can use that, right? This is something. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's definitely a different process. But yeah. on that note, so you, you talked about the fight scenes as well that you want to get to. And I know you are very visual and you've actually like, choreograph some of your fights mm -hmm. to help you with writing that. How, how does that happen? Yeah, especially when you get to really big battles, which are coming in Realm Breaker and happen towards the end of Red Queen. I was physically drawing out, you know, where armies were and what their movements were. Um, I have an atlas of Middle Earth and a book about the, be the biggest battles in the medieval world that have those sort of outlines of legionnaire movements and, and maneuvers and tactics. And they try to read those, not necessarily to copy things, but just to ingest it and metabolize it so that when the time comes, I have a general idea of what I'm talking about. And if I need to get more specific, I know where to go to look. But for the most part, you usually don't. You, you can give the audience enough that they can make that last leap in logic themselves. I also really choreograph to music. Almost all of my really big set pieces I planned out in my head to some sort of song or score soundtrack. Um, in Realm Breaker, there's a horse stampede. And I choreographed that entire sequence to the um, Brothers in Arms track from Mad Max Fury Road. And I was just listening to that on repeat. The prologue, I was listening to ACDC's Hell's Bells on repeat. And it very much <laughs> helps me with those 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 moments of rhythm and balance and movement so that even though it's a book, it feels like it's very much a moving image in your brain because it was set to music for me. And I feel like that imbues it with a little bit more life and a little bit more excitement. Okay. And is that like, how much of that is a conscious process for you? Or is it just put it on as long as you're listening to it, it kind of subtly changes how you're thinking about Usually, it. Usually I will, I, I walk my dog every day. I go for long walks and I will listen to music and just kind of be open to thinking about scenes or okay. characters or pieces of the story, like knowing, okay, I need a big set piece at the end of this. I'm going to listen to this song off of the soundtrack that I've compiled this playlist. And I started listening to that one and it went, it's a horse race. It's a stampede. Oh my God, they have to hide under the horse's saddles and they're all like stuck on the sides and they're going through a canyon. I've got it. I've got this turn. I've got this piece. And then sometimes the music will really surprise me too and bring out something that I didn't think was going to happen. Um, but it's a very collaborative experience between my visual and my auditory and my hands. <laughs> That's that's so cool. I always love getting the behind the scenes on the process, especially when it's so much different than like how I would personally approach something. Right. I should definitely put out a playlist guide with play this song at this page at this word. <laughs> that would be cool, right? That's like mm. the next level of interactivity or something. Right. Someone can go onto your site and say, I'm on this chapter and it just like sets the music behind you. You maybe just gave me a great idea for some content. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I do like, because we were talking earlier kind of about like tropes that you see in kind of these epic quests and everything and what you would expect to see. Personally, I don't think I've ever seen like this mysterious parent trope uh, flipped quite like how you approached it. And I did actually 
go on TV tropes and make sure I, I had the TV right name tropes. for that. <laughs> um, so yeah, mysterious parent where like there's this, oh, like I never knew my father or never knew my mother. And like they turn out to be someone surprise, surprise, like kind of important. Mm -hmm. um, but in this book, so the central character, Karain, is very much aware of who her father is. And she just has no interest in going out and saving the world initially. Right. And that was one of the original pieces of the story that a whole idea of the heroes fail. And then, you know, people who don't believe in heroes who have to become heroes themselves. So I knew I wanted to jump off from a point where she knew who her father was. She knew what kind of like, quote, destiny he had. And her experience is like, that guy sucked. He abandoned me. He doesn't care about me. Why should I care about him? I don't care. And he's not part of me. And yet she's also struggling with the fact that he very much is. And she doesn't want to live up to that because he has hurt her in so many ways. And then as the story goes on, she has to kind of take up the mantle he's left behind, which she doesn't want to do and doesn't know if she can do. And that's another like blow against her ego. Um, but yeah, I very much use TV tropes, um, writing all of my stuff <laughs> because I love tropes and I love that familiar piece that an audience, you give them a little bit of it and they're like, oh, I know where this is going. And you can then take a hard right and really surprise them because they have an expectation that you were going to change. And it also, again, allows you to push them a little bit further in your storytelling because they've already come so far because they recognize the pieces. It's the same reason three-act eight structure sequencing is our three-act eight sequence structure is so um, important because it is the natural flow of Western story that audiences have become accustomed to. So even subconsciously, they kind of know where the beats and the rhythm are. It's the same thing with tropes is you can use them to sort of lull the audience into this sense of security, and then really take them for a ride. And there is a, something to be said. All of these things are tropes because they work and people enjoy them. It's just finding new ways in and new ways out. Yeah. And I feel like there's also kind of like a prescriptive versus descriptive, like disconnect with tropes where like, mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, these are the tropes. So like that's, they're overused and like you just throw them together to make a story. They're kind of defined that way because that's what makes a good story in the first right. place. Right. I mean, you can say, I hate this trope, but it's just like, you haven't read it done well in a way that you connect to. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and okay, so last question about Realm Breaker specifically, without getting too much into spoilers, we do eventually get scenes from a villain's perspective. Uh, and so how do you approach this? Like, how do you, do you try to make them relatable? But like, how do you still say like, okay, this is very much a villain? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, just how do you tackle that? I, I definitely come from the standpoint of relatable understandable. You know where the motivation started. And while you may not agree with it, you can see how they got there. Um, there's the obvious, you know, every villain thinks they're the hero. And that's not necessarily true. There are definitely some villains who know what I'm doing is wrong, but I have a right to do it because I have been harmed yep. or changed or abused in this way. And now it's manifesting here. Um, and that's very interesting to me. But with any POV character, hero or villain or in between, I have to have something that I can connect with in them that I believe in that is a part of me and is a part of them or else I can't write them in a way that they deserve. I, I never write characters who I dislike. There's always something where I'm like, hmm, I wish that was me or I understand where this comes from in me and where it comes from in you. Um, and the villain you're referring to in this so story, I was really, really happy to write that person and um, have that background and that flip 
because you very much come into it understanding why they are the way they are and thinking something else is going to happen, but their choices make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely appreciated that afterwards, kind of thinking back through what we knew. Um, I'm not going to talk too much more about that because I do <laughs> want people to get the same experience that I cool. got going into the story. Good. Yeah, but okay. So yeah, readers now have the choice between two series of yours to get started into your work. So is there any kind of like uniting theme to your writing? I'd call this maybe your authorial brand, but I think that kind of has a very specific businessy publicity mm -hmm. meaning. Yeah, I mean... I think I probably, something I really pride myself on doing is writing familiar fantasy. With Red Queen, I had a lot of people tell me, oh, I never liked fantasy books before this, or I never read fantasy books, and now I do. Um, I feel like I'm a good gateway drug to a lot of stories that are much more dense and complex um, because I, I do utilize tropes and I do utilize stepping stones and little manipulative tricks to get an audience to follow me down a path they necessarily wouldn't go on if they knew what it was. I love, I love doing that to people. Um, I also think, especially because these, both these books are young adult with the fantasy edge. They're very much about people figuring out who they are or seeing who they're becoming and not liking it and trying to change it. And I think that's a really universal experience for almost all readers. And that's why YA, even though we are writing for teenagers, half of our readership are not teenagers because everyone can connect to that and everyone has gone through that. I think probably my biggest surprise is uh, as someone who like grew up reading almost exclusively YA is that, yeah, I mean, it's it's both a marketing category and kind of like a storytelling style mm -hmm. where I, I don't think I've found a bloated, huge, epic YA right. that I feel like goes on far longer than it should. Right. Yeah. You're more hooked into the characters. It's more streamlined. Absolutely. Yeah. It is a brutal audience. I'll tell you that because you are competing <laughs> with so many different things between social media and phones and school and life, you have to be the most interesting thing in that person's, you know, sphere to get the attention to finish a book. Okay. So what can fans expect from you next? I imagine you're probably hard at work on book two or given the speed of publishing, maybe book uh, three already. No. Oh my God. I would cut off my arm to be in book three. Uh, I'm in that really <laughs> interesting zone where promo and publicity to release Romebreaker has eclipsed the actual writing of the second book, which can be frustrating because it's not really a part of the job you know is there until suddenly you're in it. Um, and it seems like, oh, right. writing the next book, that's the most important thing. And you're like, it is until it isn't. Um, but I'm hoping to get back into writing the second book as soon as I can. Once I am able to finish, I have some more tippins to sign, essentially. We're doing a lot of pre-ordered signed books for this one, especially because we can't go on tour um, physically. Uh, but getting that out of the way, getting back to the actual writing is what I'm really excited about. Um, and then after that would be book three. I'm also working on some adaptation projects that I can't really say anything about, but some eagle-eyed fans have kind of figured out what's going on. And that's it for me. Also, <laughs> getting my posture under control. I've had a lot of back issues this year, which I think a lot of us can relate to. Yep. I absolutely have had back issues as well. I finally splurged and got myself one of those like really fancy rolly chairs with like oh, the good. adjustable positions and everything. Nice. It really makes a difference. It Who would have thought, it, right? Insurance should pay for them. Oh, man, they really should. 
Yeah, well, okay. Uh, speaking of eagle-eyed fans, I do think maybe on your Tumblr page you might be dropping some hints about mm-hmm. that. We don't need to go into too many details there. But I do always want to ask people, uh, are there any books you've read lately that you've enjoyed? Anything you just want to talk about and get the word out? Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, A Song of Race and Ruin by Roseanne Brown. And the second book, this one came out in 2020, but the second book is coming out in the fall. Um, I loved Lore by Alex Bracken. And I'm currently reading uh, A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes, which is about the women of the Trojan War and the aftermath they went through. And I'm loving it. I am a sucker for these feminist Greek tragedy and epic retellings. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Our all of those books, is that most recent book, is that actually out yet? Or is that it an advanced is. copy you've got it your is. hands on? I managed okay. to get that in. A, I bought that in a store, so I'm assuming it's out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. That's a good indicator. Yeah. Um, yeah. Always have to check with authors because you guys get access to so many cool books well before most other people. That's true. Oh, and Lee Bardugo's latest book in the Grishaverse came out today. Um, and I am waiting for it to drop on my doorstep. Ooh, exciting. Yep. Uh, that's something I, I want to catch up on that series. I've read... You've got a month I, until the TV show comes out. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say, right? Uh, so the TV show comes out and I'll probably both want to know more and also want to be that fan who's like, oh, wait till we get to this part. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, the trailer came out for the show today and it is so good looking. It does look really good. I think we're really all good. primed for shows like this to kind of look janky and Netflix was like, no, no, we're going to put money into this. Yeah, no, the more big budget fantasy and sci-fi adaptations we get, the better. I mean, original work as well, right? But I feel like people are more likely to throw the big bucks at adaptations. Oh, yeah. Um, Like even we've talked about Lord of the Rings, even the Lord of the Rings adaptation that's going to be coming out. It's going to be the most expensive show ever. They've committed. (laughs) They have a nine figure commitment, I think, to that show with a three season commitment. It's crazy. I the actually the screenwriter who did the first adaptation of Red Queen for her feature um, way back when that was happening um is one of the writers now on lord of the rings and um we've oh, like kept so in cool touch. yeah and we've like kept in touch and i know her and it's like oh it's in good hands <laughs> that's good yeah i i would expect good things from a show that has such crazy expectations mm-hmm. behind it from so many people i would watch grass yeah fingers crossed <laughs> So, okay. And I always like to close these out by just asking, uh, and we are getting towards the end of this whole uh, pandemic experience. So this is less of an oddly placed question. (laughs) Uh, What's just one thing that you're very excited about right now? Uh, I'm really excited about the whole light at the end of the tunnel situation. Um, I've been vaccinated. Uh, My partner's been vaccinated. We live in LA where we went through the surge. He's a doctor. So it's been a really shitty year. And now we're kind of coming through wow. it and uh, feeling like human again and a little bit more safe and a little bit less with our eyes glued to the news. Getting that brain space back has been very, very nice. Yes, I think that's probably one of the things that I'm most going to be looking forward to is getting some brain space back. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I think that wraps up pretty much everything I have for you, Victoria. Again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. You can find Victoria Aveyard on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok as Victoria Aveyard or at our website, victoriaaveyard.com. Realmbreaker thrusts you into a magical realm and doesn't shy away from breaking your heart. It's an epic story that never lets up. As always, you can find us over at the Fantasy Inn, 
www.thepodcastmarketingmusicgroup.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. And if you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really helps us so, so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.